Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of Secure Your Strategy Podcast, where your host, Chloe Mestagi, provides strategies to leaders and managers on how to repair critical issues in security and tech. We're glad you've tuned in. It's time to secure your strategy and your stakeholder approval. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hi everyone, my name is Chloe Mistagi and I am the host of ITSP Magazine Secure Your Strategy podcast. And with me today, I have a special guest named Simon. Simon, you want to tell the world a little bit about yourself? Hey Chloe, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, yeah, my name is Simon Hodgkinson. Uh, I am the former Chief Information Security Officer for BP. Uh, and prior to that, uh, I ran global infrastructure and operations for BP uh, across six, uh, 60 countries, eight, in fact, 80 countries, 600 uh, sites, 75,000 staff. So I've seen security um, from all aspects and, uh, and also delivered operations into there. Since leaving BP at the end of 2020, I'm now a strategic advisor for several software companies. I've also done advisory work in the National Health Service for their digital organization, and I've served as advisor for the Natural History Museum. Well, I'm going to have to ask so many questions about the Natural History Museum because I'm now really fascinated about that. But let's first go into the thing you're really passionate about, which is operations resiliency. And this has been your passion for some time now, but in, in particular this year as well. I know you went to InfoSec Europe and, you know, that was a topic that was definitely trending. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your passion behind it and the reason why operations resilience is such like a, a passion of yours? Yeah, well, so we talk in security, we talk a lot about cybersecurity um, for, for the, the purpose of cybersecurity. And I often think we forget what we're here to do. And our jobs in cybersecurity is to enable the business to be uh, successful, to deliver on their strategic outcomes. Um, and that means that we need to think through the lens of, is the business operationally resilient rather than is it just secure from a cyber perspective? And, and to use my firm, former employee, BP, as an example, BP weren't there to do cybersecurity. BP were there to get hydrocarbons out the ground. They were there to produce renewable energy, to deliver fuel into, into retail stations, uh, to run ships and what have you. Um, cyber is there to enable the business to be successful with appropriate um, uh, mitigations and controls in place. Uh, and therefore, I always think through the lens of, is the business operationally resilient from a cybersecurity perspective? Um, as as I, I smile, but, you know, there is no uh, absolute security. You know, no company can put a hand on heart and say this this business is 100% secure and you never will be. Um, you have to assume compromise and therefore you have to think through the lens of, are we resilient should, uh, should something um, happen to us? And if you think about this sort of the definition of resilience, it's about being able to withstand or recover from an adverse event. And I think that really describes what we do in cyber what really, really well. 
you know, you put things in place to withstand something bad happening, but you've got to assume it will happen. And therefore, are you able to recover from that event in a time frame that uh, meets your business um, resilience requirements? I like your point about, you know, companies and the whole, oh, we're 100% secure. I remember that right when I joined InfoSec, I remember going to RSA conference and like, there was like these like boards like, oh, we're a hundred percent secure. Like you can't break us and this and everything like that. I'm like, I feel like you're just creating a challenge for yourself because yeah. everyone is not secure. Like it's, you cannot have hundred percent secure. And that's the thing that I it really resonate with what you were talking about. But the other thing that resonated was the whole uh, situation where, you know, you, as, as yourself, as a former CISO, one of the things that was very crucial is making sure that operations would flow and understand that cybersecurity plays a massive role in that. You cannot have operations without cybersecurity. Um, but did you ever run into situations, say with like your peers or executives or boards when you're trying to let them know like, hey, this is actually a risk situation. I need you to listen to me. Because I feel like CISOs are always dealing with that and they're always looking for advice of how do I build this bridge with people that don't understand security, may have apathy to security, but I understand that this company would not survive without security. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I was blessed to have a, an incredibly um, supportive and well-informed uh, executive team and board at, at BP. They engaged with cy- the, the whole um, conversation around cybersecurity very early on. Um, but I think the skill is actually talking about the risk to the business. It's not talking about unpatch servers and what have you it's it, you know that's that's an input metric but actually when you're talking to the business leadership you've got to be turning that into a narrative that they understand you know any business leader um, can't be expected to understand at the lowest level of granularity each of the risks they need to manage and if you think about say a, a bp or or a national health service or what have you you know, there are very different risks that they're managing every day of the week. So um, for uh, an oil and gas company, you know, we, we worry about safety um, because we, you know, the oil and gas industry has traditionally killed people, you know, turn up to the office and don't go home at night. So that's the number one priority is to make sure that, 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 that the people are safe. And so when you start talking about things like operational security, the security of things like the rigs and the refineries, um, you need to be talking about that in context of the actual business risk that's running. And of course, a cyber security attack on on a um, on operational technology in one of those areas could have a kinetic effect. It could cause an explosion and therefore the risk could be a major accident risk, which could lead to fatalities or or an environmental uh, impact. Uh, and, and once you start to talk in, in business language about the risk, then you, you tend to get a better connection um, uh, and a better conversation. Now, I am never one that's going to say cybersecurity risk has to be your number one priority. It, it doesn't. Cybersecurity risk needs to be considered amongst all the other risks that your business is managing. And then when you've got constrained dollars, you've got to figure out which which risk is more important that you you uh, pro- and proportionally respond with whatever resources you have to to managing it. 
Um, and I think for for certainly post NotPetya and WannaCry, there was a lot of running around saying the sky's falling in, you know, uh, the world of cybersecurity, everything's going to crash, um, uh, and and using militaristic language and you know even the imagery that goes around cybersecurity, the deep dark arts of cybersecurity was there to scare people, and I think that worked for a short while. Um, because people were genuinely scared. They heard about the impact to the, the shipping company, Maersk and Merck and Racket Banks are all of those companies that had devastating impacts. And the NHS in the UK, you might imagine it's a it's a it's an um an organization that everybody understands and loves. And therefore, when they saw a cyber attack that impacted the the NHS, they had an emotional connection to it. And the response was the world's, the, you know, the sky's falling in. You've got to open checkbook, spend money. Um, now, I think, through some brilliant work to inform boards and executive teams about this is just another business risk. People are now starting to question, properly question, where they allocate that constrained resources and whether they put that money into market credit risk or physical safety risk or cybersecurity risk should be a balanced conversation. Did you start seeing kind of like a shift of people becoming more security forward, like during the pandemic because of the surge of breaches? Or was that something that you started seeing prior to the pandemic? So I think it depends on the organization, really. I think you saw that the, the bigger organizations, the larger enterprises that, you know, started their cybersecurity journey a decade or more ago. Um, and things like um, Shamoon uh, in what was that, 2013 and Pechera's 2017 and what have you, they just accelerated those security programs because it brought cybersecurity into the mainstream um, press. People really understood that actually a cybersecurity uh, event could cause devastating impact to the supply chain. Um, you know, it wasn't that the shipping company had been um, hit. It was actually the goods I need from the shipping company aren't turning up. So people were seeing a real impact of that. And I think that's that's when it really started to become uh, mainstream and, and investment um, started to accelerate. Uh, and then the regulators get involved and the regulators start to say, mm, you need to do something about cybersecurity. And a lot of the smaller companies then start their compliance um, journeys, not necessarily doing it for the right reasons all of the time, but doing it because the regulators have told them they've got to uh, they've got to do something about cybersecurity. So I think, you know, uh, the pandemic, of course, you know, working from home created some different um, different risks for organizations and again sort of dependent on where you were in your security journey and where you were in your frankly your cloud journey as well as to how mature your security posture was as you went to to home working but you'll find a lot of the, the bigger organizations were already fairly advanced on some of the more uh, you know on the cloud technology and therefore they built security for uh, a world where people are really coming in from an internet facing um, perspective that's not true of all of them though i mean i'm we were very lucky uh we we had already um largely deployed that kind of um 
that model where everybody was deemed to be internet, you know, on the internet, um, we were exposing our applications. Um, through the internet, we had uh, robust um, connections back into our on-premise environments that were already there. And it was just a scaling issue that we had to deal with where many organizations um, had to start that journey, but they tended to be the smaller ones. Um, I had a question about like operations resiliency when it came to like when you worked at BP, for example, I would imagine like an oil industry, uh, there's a huge emphasis on risk and making sure you understand the dangers. And it feels like that's very much ingrained in such an industry. But then you go to the tech industry and I don't know if sometimes it doesn't feel like as if they're more risk forward in a sense, depending on what company, of course. But I'm curious about the if you've learned a lot from the oil industry that you've taken over to a tech industry when it comes to operations resiliency. So, so I think I think so, but I, I think in in many respects, if you so so let me let me describe in in a few incidents about why it's in, important, and you can see that similar situations in uh, analogous situations in in, in tech. So some of the bigger incidents we had were cyber attacks uh, when I was at BP were cyber attacks that um, impacted supply chain. Um, so although, uh, you know, a, a supplier of ours, there was one particular case where it was a logistics supplier um, in uh, in ANZ, um, they got hit by ransomware and they weren't able to supply product to our retail stores. And if you've got no product on your shelves to sell, you can't open the store, right? Your business is effectively down. So, so there was the wake up call for us there was really about actually um, that wasn't a cyber um, resilience conversation at all. It was a business resilience conversation. Did we have resilience in our logistics provider in the supply chain should that one of them not be able to fulfill the uh, their business objectives that we had somebody else who could do it? And that really, you know, I think people need to think through not cyber attack just on us as an organization but you know if we're there to sell product if we're a retailer and we're there to sell product if we can't get product into the store we've got nothing to sell and therefore our business doesn't e exist and that sort of there's one example another example is you know we got a few of our uh, contractors so people who came in to um, uh, manage activity within um, a couple of our uh, upstream our exploration environments and they got hit by ransomware and our immediate impact our immediate um, response to that was to cut their access off because they were coming into our environment, they were working in our environment, they were potentially bringing technology into the environment. We wanted to make sure there was never gonna be any lateral um, threat, uh, lateral movement into our environment, whatever caused their malware attempt. So by terminating their access meant that they couldn't do their jobs. So that affected our ability to get hydrocarbons out of the ground. And that costs a, a lot of money when you can, you know, you know, you stop drilling, that's a, a huge amount of money, but the business was supportive because they understood the risk of, of us not, uh, not doing that. But I share those examples because they weren't cyber attacks on BP, but they have a massive impact on our business resilience because we hadn't necessarily considered that in our 
in our whole operational resilience um, response. Now, you saw the impact of a few of the tech companies in this, uh, you know, from a, um, a solar winds, et cetera, the, the blowback from those incidents is enormous, you know, and the potential for an attack on a, a tech provider then to, um, uh, you know, compromise thousands of companies. And that was always a concern for us because we were we used a lot of outsourcing providers. So we had to uh, make sure that as best we possibly could, we did appropriate assurance to say that those outsourcing providers were appropriate, secure, and the way they, they connected into our environment was appropriately secured so that they couldn't cause an issue within BP, but equally, if they had a cyber attack on a big outsourcing provider, we still needed our IT systems to run. So we need, needed to make sure that they had resilience built into their uh, into their um, uh, operational models um, such that they could still fulfill their obligations to deliver IT services to us. Because if, we, if those IT services weren't working, our business wasn't running. And I hope that sort of it gives you a sense oh, of definitely on that. Um, I think like one of the things I always think about is how many companies don't have incident response plans still to this day. Yeah, it, it sounds like Simon that you're one of those folks that like you know when you were a CISO that that's like one of the top things making sure that there is a threat response you know incident response plan and that there's been practices and drills probably as well. Um, what are some advice that you would have for CISOs that are trying to move forward to do all these incident response plans, but also are trying to juggle like the time that they have? Um, because, you know, CISOs can be very busy and security teams are always busy, but sometimes we're always not able to pr be proactive when it comes to security. So what's some advice that you have for CISOs that are dealing with that? You know, one of the best things is crisis simulation exercises with the executive team um, because you, you come back to the, the point you made very early on in the discussion about the challenge of getting the executive and the business leadership on board with the cyber journey the best way we found to do that was to immerse them in simulation exercises um, and, and again, you know, to, to give uh, an example, I mean, we were fairly mature from a cybersecurity perspective, but, you know, let, let's put it in context. Whenever we talk to um, the executive and the team and the board, we would always say you have to assume compromise and judge us on our ability to find people in our network. You know, that's when you're good, when you find them that, that's in there. So they were very, very aware, but actually we used crisis simulation exercises to raise awareness so that we actually made progress with our maturity journey. Uh, and I don't want this to come across that we were brilliant. We, there was plenty that needed to, to improve, um, right? So, um, but, but we did do some things well. Uh, and and so so in the in the space of operational technology, as you can imagine, you know, if you think about safety, uh, environmental, reputational risk being the top things we need to worry about in the company, 
Well, having uh, a, a significant uh, major accident in uh, in one of our upstream or downstream facilities would be catastrophic, as you saw within the, the, the Gulf of Mexico, of course, when a, a real physical event um, took place. But so, so it was really, you know, first part of that journey was actually convincing um, the engineers that this could happen and then taking it up to the executive team to get the resources um, to uh, to address the cyber risk in in those facilities. And and it's very different. It's very different from OT and IT. I mean, there's a there's you know, you're moving from a technology refresh cycles of a few years to three, four years to 10, 12, 15 years in the, in the OT space. But nonetheless, you have to worry then about things like mitigating control. So we had a, a pretty pretty um, simple but robust set of, um, uh, of controls that we wanted to put in place and we were making reasonable progress. Um, but we use the crisis simulation exercise to continually educate people on what could happen should a, um, a piece of malware get into those environments. And um, and also then to make, to guide, almost guide the, the executive team to ask you the questions that you really wanted them to ask. So one of the examples would be we we did a, a pretty reasonable job of inventory in the environment, but it was very manual um, and it was down to the sites to 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 inventory that. And it was often stored on, you know, Excel files, et cetera. And, and you know, one of the scenarios we had was a PLC that was um, infected with malware. And the obvious question was, where else is it? Uh, and by the way, this was all simulation. So just for the avoidance of anybody listening into the call. But the obvious question was, where else is it in the environment? And the answer was, well, we'll need to go and phone around all of the different sites and ask them for their inventory. And then, well, what, why haven't we got a configuration management, centralized configuration management system? Well, what a great idea that is. So then we started to invest in creating a central configuration management system for the OT environment. So you can use those crisis simulations and direct to the areas that you're not necessarily making the traction that you want. These are really bright people running these companies, really, really bright people running any business. And if you shape the crisis simulation in the right way so that people ask the, the obvious and, and sensible questions, and you're bold enough to say, well, we don't do that at the moment, or we don't do a great job of, of that, then that then that's the way you start to open up that narrative with the executive team and say, well, actually, maybe we should do that. Again, balancing every other priority and risk that they've got to uh, they've got to manage. That, that, that's one other thing I, I, I kind of bring up as well. You know, people um, have to recognize that boards are there to help companies manage risk. So you absolutely need to be 100% transparent with your boards. Don't hide anything. Don't try and make it sound like you're doing the best job in the world and nothing bad is ever going to happen here. Be brutally honest and transparent with the board about the risk that um, that you have in your environment, whether that's the fact you've been breached, um, they need to know about it, whether that's um, the fact that, you know, you're running some legacy technology that has 
you know, significant vulnerabilities in it. You just got to be really honest. They're not there to mark your homework. They're there to help you manage the risk. So that sort of brutal honesty is required for a CISO. And it's not easy at times when companies have given you a lot of money and a lot of resources to get the, the job done and you go in and you you have to tell them that actually there's still all of these other things that you've never got to and these other problems, it's, it's not an easy conversation, but it is an absolutely necessary conversation and, uh, and, and, and one that CISO should never be concerned about. They should always be brutally honest. I would agree 100% on that. I've had too many cases or I read too many cases of, for example, the CISO does tell the CEO, hey, we have a, a breach right now. And then the CISO is like, we got to tell the board. And the CEO is like, no, we're not going to tell the board. And then it just like this massive PR situation then unravels like six months later. It's publicly known that like you didn't report to the board and the board needs to know they're there to advise, assist, to help you grow. Um, yeah, definitely on that. Um, one thing is that I have heard that do happen quite a bit is sometimes when there's too many cooks in the kitchen situation. So say, for example, the CISO uh, is talking to the executive team saying, hey, we have to work on these uh, this situation right now in our operations. But then there's other people like, oh, no, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? But they're not in security, but they're giving advice on how to go about this situation secure that is your job. So what do you do in these type of situations? Because too many cooks in the kitchen, uh, there's like, some, it continues that the stew goes bad or something. I don't know. But <laughs> anyway, what advice do you have when you have too many cooks in the kitchen when you're a CISO? Because that's going to happen at times. And it's rough, especially when you're trying to be resilient in your operations. So I think the CISO jobs changed a lot. Um, it used to be, uh, used to be a very kind of most people who got into the CISO job probably ten years ago were real technical security folk, um, and it was all about the technology. Now it, it, it's not at all. It's about the business, and it's about having people that understand. Again, I'll come back to the operational resilience, the operational risk piece. It's about having people that are able to converse with the business on what is their risk um, appetite, what is their risk tolerance, um, what is the narrative that goes around cybersecurity risk such that it can be evaluated in context of the 10 other risks, strategic risks, the, the, the business leadership are, uh, are, are dealing with. Um, so, so not being outside of the, the, the conversation with the business, but equally not being outside of the conversation with the digital organization. Well, I use digital to encapture the CIO, the CTO, the CDO, all of those different um, different uh, uh, names that you, you get associated with, um, with IT leadership. But, but that, that kind of, that whole digital leadership to CISO conversation has to be really robust. Um, and and the, the biggest skill I think is it is the notion of embedding um, cybersecurity. So it being a part of the solution, not separate from the, the solution and, and, and applied after the event, because that's where you get into that sort of 
clash of, um, you know, actually it's good enough. Um, I'm happy with what we've done. I'll sign off the risk. Um, that's all too late, um, especially with um, with technology delivery cycles now in days, hours and days, not in big waterfall projects that last months, if not years. You have to embed cybersecurity from uh, through all of the development lifecycle right up to release and codify that in a way that, you know, you've agreed in your policy. What is what is reasonable for uh, a release to go live, um, but actually not not leave it to a, a security guy who's at the end with a, a checklist going, no, no, you can't go live with that critical business project because you haven't achieved this. That's way, way too late in the cycle. So I think you have to embed security um, and I very deliberately said the business first and digital after, because you have to do both. But actually, if you just embed it in digital, you're, you're potentially going to miss opportunities in the, in the business area. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples there. So new country entry. So as businesses start to look at um, moving into new countries, you need your cybersecurity team involved in that to understand the different risks. New business entry, you know, if you're going into new business areas, you need to understand, you know, what are the, the cyber risks in those businesses, often more geopolitical type things, certainly in the, in the country areas. Uh, mergers, acquisitions and divestments, absolutely critical that cyber risk is evaluated in those deals. I mean, it can cost tens if not hundreds of millions if you get it wrong to retrofit cyber in an organization that you've you've bought um and uh, especially if you're in more of the kind of heavy engineering environment where you've got a kind of retrofit cyber security into in into operational technology so so you know you have to have to be a part of everything so the days of the deeply technical CISOs are gone and you need people that have you know are able to engage at all levels in the organization in terms of the whole um operational risk narrative and the operational re resilience conversation that uh, procurement's another one right i mean supply chain is absolutely critical so getting proper contractual obligations in in supply chain is 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 hugely important. But if you're in the FTSE 100 or S&P 500, you've probably got 10,000 or plus suppliers in your procurement systems. Well, I mean, it's impossible to do anything with that number of suppliers. So how do you then rank those suppliers in a way that says these are the ones really critical to us as a business delivering our outcomes? And therefore, we need to do more around ensuring their um, contractual obligations are in the contracts and they deliver. And we put assurance around those contractual obligations that they're actually delivering on their um their security obligations. So again, another example of uh, another area of the uh, the business that you need a great conversation with. The final one I'll come up with is internal audit. Internal audit are your friend as a cyber as a CISO. They are absolutely uh, critical um, and agreeing and having a good relationship with audit. Um, and that's including them auditing you and often telling you you're not doing very well. But that's fine. You need a, a, a separate set of eyes on what you're doing. 
but also as you go into different business conversations, having that audit lens saying, actually, we see these gaps. Uh, and if the CISO is saying the same thing, well, you often get more momentum behind addressing some of those maturity gaps in, the, in those areas. So so often people look at audit as, as uh, being somebody to avoid, but actually I would say they are absolutely your friend as a CISO and you should work really closely, even though they'll tell you all of the time you're not doing a good enough job. But that's you're never going to do a good enough job. I feel like uh, the CISOs that tend to avoid it is because they're concerned about you know, having like rejection sensitivity or something like that, because it's going to be like, no, this is not good enough. No, that's definitely not good enough. Simon, we have to address the elephant in the room, which is, you know, when we talk about operations resiliency, the one thing that everyone is talking about still to this day is AI, AI security. What, What do CISOs need to do right now to be proactive and also reactive at this time where the adoption of AI is surging right now. It is the the topic. Um, and when it comes to operations resiliency. Yeah, great question. So, so first of all, avoid the snake oil. Um, so uh, there's an awful lot of an awful lot of cyber securities. I mean, I was at Infocet, um, and uh, there's an awful lot of cyber securities out there, uh, companies out there um, claiming uh, AI is going to solve all your cyber security challenges. Well, it will help for sure, um, but uh, and and you should adopt it, but don't go off buying loads of product. The 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 worst thing I think um, that. Uh, security organizations do is just run after more and more product to try and solve the problem Uh, and largely because that then just becomes a massive integration headache and you create more noise than you ever get signal when you get all of these solutions um, deployed out there so you know how do you use AI well you know you need to figure out who the right partners are who've got the right solutions that actually integrate into your environment um without uh, without just having this proliferation of, uh, of technology. So there's absolutely no doubt AI will help from a defense perspective. Um, but obviously at the same time, it's a bit like everything in cyber, you know, uh, the, the, um, the adversaries are adopting AI at the same pace or, or abusing AI at the same pace um, that the uh, defensive technology can respond. So it's a bit of a, it's a bit of an arms race still, um, but it's always been in, in security, I'm afraid. Well, you know, before pre us even talking about AI, um, you know, we were talking about things like, um, uh, you know, just machine learning, et cetera, robotic process automation, bots, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, it's been out there for ages and it's just been an arms race. I think the interesting thing with AI from a particular interest perspective, just the ethical and moral side of things. And how do you make sure that um, your models aren't influenced in a way that creates a negative effect, whether that's bias or or actually a genuinely negative uh, effect. Also, you know, there's lots of tech, there's, there's, there's lots of um, indirect relationships. So, you know, amount of people that, you know, take things like Twitter feeds and what have you, 
So, um, you know, uh, and ingest that information as part of the the um, decision making in their in their AI models. They've got to make sure that, you know, that that's not being influenced by sophisticated uh, international um, uh, uh, nation state actors. Right. I mean, who knows what was true and what wasn't true around the, the elections. And, and how they were influenced. But you can see the possibility of that being a way um, that influences uh, some of the feeds that you take into your models that eventually end up giving you the wrong, uh, the wrong decision. And that is vexingly complicated to, uh, to solve. So the question is, can you actually take the human out of the loop of all of that, or what? What does the human play in terms of still putting the right governance uh, around those uh, those models that you're deploying from an AI perspective? So that wasn't an answer because oh. I don't think there is one. <laughs> I think it's kind of like one of those things that like, it's still developing. So we're all gonna we're trying to figure out what comes next, and we all have our own like ideas but we won't know i think in with time and it's kind of that situation yeah. and, and you know you get the 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 world's ending kind of narrative yes. around ai is going to be the end of the world and all that yeah that the whole yeah. elon musk situation like we have to put a hold on ai for six months because the world could come to an end but then he launches his own ai product within those six yeah. months like yeah Oh, it is it is all a bit bizarre but i think i think again i think there's got to be there's interesting in in the whole cyber world if you step back a little bit as well you know in the kinetic world you've got things like the geneva convention uh, about um but you don't have similar in the cyber world in the ai world you're going to have to get some kind of ethical and moral um regulations put in place and some way of governing it because you know the world isn't going to end. I mean, that's you know, it's not it's not going to cause that. In my opinion, it's not going to cause that catastrophic effect, but it could end up creating some really divisive outcomes. Um, you know, I do um, quite a lot of work with uh, a fairly marginalised group or very marginalised group as a part of a not for profit, and I can see that you know if 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 people start to use data that is misinformed in their AI models, that will just lead to more, lead to more and more and more marginalization of already marginalized groups. Um, and that, that really worries me. Um, so from a, from a kind of inclusion and a diversity perspective, um, that really does concern me. Yeah, it's the the thing I guess probably keeps you up at night on AI is the whole biases situation, like you said earlier, because when you don't have diverse people creating a product, you're going to get a very interesting result where it doesn't uh, be applicable to other groups, people, and then they get, you know, pushed out in a sense. And that's something that we've seen in security in our products too. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, again, you just add to that that, there's a lot of capability out there to influence the inputs to those models because you don't actually need to change the model necessarily. You just need to influence the the model through the data that's being fed to it. And uh, you know some of the very well resourced um, nation states have 
uh, fairly uh, uninclusive, uh, extreme, um, extreme right wing uh, opinions, and that really worries me that that's that you know that's going to be used to influence influence uh, models, and the outcome of that will just be more and more um, um, uh, marginalization of those uh, those groups. Uh, it sounds like you were mentioning earlier about gaining like certain standards and practices that could be used. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with ESG, like environmental, uh, social governance. That I feel yeah. like that's kind of, it needs to be more up to date. I don't know if you've seen the ESG for cybersecurity. It's very bland. It's like very basic, but I think we need something like that around AI because we don't have these type of measurements nor transparency about how companies are using it or utilizing it when it comes to security needs. Yeah, I, I agree. But I think there's still also an awful lot needed in cybersecurity as well. So I think, you know, I think the U.S., government have become uh, a lot more declarative lately mm-hmm. um which is good um it sets the bar and it sets the expectations just in the on move back from ai back to, to cyber and i think that's really good because it it tells people what they need to do the uk government have have got some great um uh, material in place but it's less declarative so it leaves mm-hmm. it to companies to try and interpret what does it mean and it's really broad and and I and I worry about that because um, because you know there is how do you I mean you're almost marking your own homework at that yeah. point because there's no bar to to achieve. So I think and and you know the US UK um, are, are fairly advanced in and certainly in the European countries as well fairly advanced in their kind of regulatory regimes. But I do think there needs to be. Uh, more declarative, certainly declarative guidance in the UK about what the um, what the uh, what people should be doing in the manner of cybersecurity. The CAF, uh, the Cyber Assessment Framework, is good, but it's so broad that yeah. you know if you don't understand cybersecurity, you don't really know what you need to do. Yeah, it, it always seems like that when it even comes to like legislation. It's whatever the US first does with cybersecurity, then like the UK tends to copy and follow like the anti-hacking laws, anti-copyright laws, like all of that. So hopefully the U.S. will move it a little bit faster. You know, I know that, uh, you know, we have CISA and they're, they're doing a phenomenal job in, you know, game bond really disclosure for companies. Yeah. And now it's going into the AI world. Simon, I'm going to leave you with one last question here before we wrap up this episode. And thank you for being on here. And the question I have for you is what advice do you have for CISOs that are trying to improve their resiliences with operations. And in particular, while looking at the world as we're going to new technologies, utilizing AI. They'll get the basics, right? Well, basics is just, that's the wrong word. Get the fundamentals, right? Um, So, you know, don't worry about you know, the last 5% of cybersecurity when you haven't got the first 95% um, addressed. So things like patching, you know, the, the, the one of the um, buzzwords in the industry that really concerns me is things like zero trust. Um, you know, because you, you can't have zero trust unless you've got a, a trusted identity 
platform. So identity is the hub of everything. Um, and yet, you know, people will sell you lots of technology that will notionally give you zero trust. So you've got to really get back to those fundamentals and make sure that, you know, you've got um, your identity secure, you've got um, you've got good patching regime in place, uh, you've got continuous vulnerability assessment. You need to know when something crops up on the internet before it gets uh, before the uh, the hackers see it out there and exploit it. So there's some some fairly fundamental things that you just uh, you just should focus on uh, on on getting in place. And then you know because that will give you that operational resilience, backup and recovery. Um, you know, uh, crisis management, incident management, and response playbooks. Um, you know, how do you how do you recover from a complete outage of ransomware? Um, or, or it doesn't have to be ransomware. Frankly, it could be a, a, a configuration mistake in, in in IT. But how do you respond from those things? How how quickly can you respond? And therefore, what does a business need to do to manage the continuity of the business whilst you're recovering the IT environments? They all sound pretty dull, um, but it, it is absolutely critical to get in uh, operational resilience in place. And it's only then you can sort of go to sleep at night knowing that if some, you know you will get attacked and hopefully you'll withstand it because you've got the, the basic controls in place. If you don't withstand it and you get impacted, you know you've got the ability to recover it in a time frame that's appropriate for the, the business to continue to deliver on their strategic outcomes. Well, thanks, Simon. It was lovely to have you on here. I'll have to have you back on soon. Um, until then, everyone, stay safe, and I will catch you in the next episode. Thanks again, Simon. Thank you very much. Lovely to meet you. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode of Secure Your Strategy Podcast with Chloe Mastagi, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.